third, chapter ten, part three of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book the third, chapter ten, part three. A woman and a lad were behind the counter, besides the man who was serving me. The woman civilly addressed the new customer. What can we have the pleasure of doing for you, miss? After pointing at first by looking me straight in the face, she answered, Nothing, thank you, at present. I'll come back when the shop is empty. She went out. The three people in the shop looked at me in silence. In silence on my side, I paid for my purchases and left the place. I don't know how I might have felt if I had been in my usual spirits. In the anxious, unsettled state I am in now, I can't deny it, the girl stung me. In the weakness of the moment, for it was nothing else, I was on the point of matching her petty spitefulness by spitefulness quite as petty on my side. I had actually got as far as the whole length of the street on my way to the Major's cottage, bent on telling him the secret of his daughter's morning walks, before my better sense came back to me. When I did cool down, I turned round at once and took the way home. No, no, Miss Milroy, mere temporary mischief-making at the cottage, which would only end in your father forgiving you, and an Armadale profiting by his indulgence, will nothing like pay the debt I owe you. I don't forget that your heart is set on Armadale, and that the Major, however he may talk, has always ended hitherto in giving you your own way. My head may be getting duller and duller, but it has not quite failed me yet. In the meantime, there is Mother Oldershaw's letter waiting obstinately to be answered. And here am I, not knowing what to do about it yet. Shall I answer it or not? It doesn't matter for the present. There are some hours still to spare before the post goes out. Suppose I asked Armadale to lend me the money. I should enjoy getting something out of him, and I believe in his present situation with Miss Milroy he would do anything to be rid of me. Mean enough this, on my part, who, when you hate and despise a man as I hate and despise Armadale, who cares for looking mean in his eyes? And yet my pride, or something else, I don't know what, shrinks from it. Half-past two, only half-past two. Oh, the dreadful weariness of these long summer days! I can't keep thinking and thinking any longer. I must do something to relieve my mind. Can I go to my piano? No, I'm not fit for it. Work? No, I shall get thinking again if I try take to my needle. A man in my place would find refuge in drink. I am not a man, and I can't drink. I'll dawdle over my dresses and put my things tidy. Has an hour passed? More than an hour. It seems like a minute. I can't look back through these leaves, but I know I wrote somewhere that I felt myself getting nearer and nearer 
to some end that was still hidden from me. The end is hidden no longer. The cloud is off my mind. The blindness has gone from my eyes. I see it. I see it. It came to me. I never sought it. If I was lying on my deathbed, I could swear, with a safe conscience, I never sought it. I was only looking over my things. I was as idly and as frivolously employed as the most idle and most frivolous woman living. I went through my dresses and my linen. What could be more innocent? Children go through their dresses and their linen. It was such a long summer day, and I was so tired of myself. I went to my boxes next. I looked over the large box first, which I usually leave open, and then I tried the small box, which I always keep locked. From one thing to the other, I came at last to the bundle of letters at the bottom, the letters of the man for whom I once sacrificed and suffered everything, the man who has made me what I am. A hundred times I had determined to burn his letters, but I have never burned them. This time all I said was, I won't read his letters, and I did read them. The villain, the false, cowardly, heartless villain! What have I to do with his letters now? Oh, the misery of being a woman! Oh, the meanness that our memory of a man can tempt us to, when our love for him is dead and gone! I read the letters. I was so lonely and so miserable. I read the letters. I came to the last, the letter he wrote to encourage me, when I hesitated, as the terrible time came nearer and nearer. The letter that revived me when my resolution failed at the eleventh hour. I read on, line after line, till I came to these words. I really have no patience with such absurdities as you have written to me. You say I am driving you on to do what is beyond a woman's courage. Am I? I might refer you to any collection of trials, English or foreign, to show you that you are utterly wrong. But such collections may be beyond your reach. And I will only refer you to a case in yesterday's newspaper. The circumstances are totally different from our circumstances, but the example of resolution in a woman is an example worth your notice. You will find among the law reports a married woman charged with fraudulently representing herself to be the missing widow of an officer in the merchant service, who was supposed to have been drowned. The name of the prisoner's husband, living, and the name of the officer, a very common one, both as to Christian and surname, happened to be identically the same. There was money to be got by it, sorely wanted by the prisoner's husband, to whom she was devotedly attached, if the fraud had succeeded. The woman took it all on herself. Her husband was hapless and ill, and the bailiffs were after him. The circumstances, as you may read for yourself, were all in her favor and were so well managed by her that the lawyers themselves acknowledged she might have succeeded if the supposed drowned man had not turned up alive and well in the nick of time to confront her. The scene took place at the lawyer's office, 
and came out in the evidence at the police court. The woman was handsome, and the sailor was a good-natured man. He wanted at first, if the lawyers would have allowed him, to let her off. He said to her, among other things, "'You didn't count on the drowned man coming back, alive and hearty, did you, ma'am?' "'It was lucky for you,' she said. "'I didn't count on it. You escaped the sea, but you wouldn't have escaped me.' "'Why, what would you have done, if you had known I was coming back?' says the sailor. She looked him steadily in the face and answered, "'I would have killed you.' "'There. Do you think such a woman as that would have written to tell me I was pressing her further than she had courage to go? A handsome woman, too, like yourself. You would drive some men in my position to wish they had her now in your place. I read no further. When I had got on, line by line, to those words, it burst on me like a flash of lightning. In an instant I saw it as plainly as I see it now. It is horrible. It is unheard of. It outdares all daring. But, if I can only nerve myself to face one terrible necessity, it is to be done. I may personate the richly provided widow of Alan Armadale of Thorpe Ambrose, if I can count on Alan Armadale's death in a given time. There, in plain words, is the frightful temptation under which I now feel myself sinking. It is frightful in more ways than one, for it has come straight out of that other temptation to which I yielded in the bygone time. Yes, there the letter has been waiting for me in my box, to serve a purpose never thought of by the villain who wrote it. There is the case, as he called it, only quoted to taunt me, utterly unlike my own case at the time. There it has been, waiting and lurking for me through all the changes in my life, till it has come to be like my case at last. It might startle any woman to see this, and even this is not the worst. The whole thing has been in my diary for days past without my knowing it. Every idle fancy that escaped me has been tending secretly that one way, and I never saw, never suspected it, till the reading of the letter put my own thoughts before me in a new light, till I saw the shadow of my own circumstances suddenly reflected in one special circumstance of that other woman's case. It is to be done if I can but look the necessity in the face. It is to be done if I can count on Alan Armadale's death in a given time. All but his death is easy. The whole series of events under which I have been blindly chafing and fretting for more than a week past have been, one and all, though I was too stupid to see it, events in my favor, events paving the way smoothly and more smoothly straight to the end. In three bold steps, only three, that end might be reached. Let Midwinter marry me privately, under his real name. Step the first. Let Armadale leave Thorpe Ambrose a single man, and die in some distant place among strangers. Step the second. Why am I hesitating? 
why not go on to step the third and last? I will go on. Step the third and last is my appearance after the announcement of Armadale's death has reached this neighborhood in the character of Armadale's widow, with my marriage certificate in my hand to prove my claim. It is as clear as the sun at noonday, thanks to the exact similarity between the two names, and thanks to the careful manner in which the secret of that similarity has been kept. I may be the wife of the dark Alan Armadale, known as such to nobody but my husband and myself, and I may, out of that very position, claim the character of widow of the light Alan Armadale, with proof to support me in the shape of my marriage certificate, which would be proof in the estimation of the most incredulous person living. To think of my having put all this in my diary, to think of my having actually contemplated this very situation, and having seen nothing more in it at the time than a reason, if I married Midwinter, for consenting to appear in the world under my husband's assumed name. What is it daunts me? The dread of obstacles? The fear of discovery? Where are the obstacles? Where is the fear of discovery? I am actually suspected all over the neighborhood of intriguing to be mistress of Thorpe Ambrose. I am the only person who knows the real turn that Armadale's inclinations have taken. Not a creature but myself is as yet aware of his early morning meetings with Miss Milroy. If it is necessary to part them, I can do it at any moment by an anonymous line to the Major. If it is necessary to remove Armadale from Thorpe Ambrose, I can get him away at three days' notice. His own lips informed me, when I last spoke to him, that he would go to the ends of the earth to be friends again with Midwinter, if Midwinter would let him. I have only to tell Midwinter to write from London and ask to be reconciled, and Midwinter would obey me, and to London Armadale would go. Every difficulty at starting is smoothed over ready to my hand. Every after-difficulty I could manage for myself. In the whole venture, desperate as it looks, to pass myself off for the widow of one man, while I am all the while the wife of the other, there is absolutely no necessity that wants twice considering but the one terrible necessity of Armadale's death. His death, it might be a terrible necessity to any other woman, but is it, ought it to be, terrible to me? I hate him for his mother's sake. I hate him for his own sake. I hate him for going to London behind my back and making inquiries about me. I hate him for forcing me out of my situation before I wanted to go. I hate him for destroying all my hopes of marrying him and throwing me back helpless on my own miserable life. But, oh, after what I have done, already in the past time, how can I, how can I? The girl, too. The girl who has come between us, who has taken him away from me, who has openly insulted me this very day. How the girl whose heart is set on him would feel if he died. What a vengeance on her if I did it. 
and when I was received as Armadale's widow, what a triumph for me! Triumph! It is more than triumph. It is the salvation of me. A name that can't be assailed, a station that can't be assailed, to hide myself in from my past life. Comfort, luxury, wealth, an income of twelve hundred a year, secured to me, secured by a will which has been looked at by a lawyer, secured independently of anything Armadale can say or do himself. I never had twelve hundred a year. At my luckiest time I never had half as much, really my own. What have I got now? Just five pounds left in the world, and the prospect, next week, of a debtor's prison. But, oh, after what I have done already in the past time, how can I? How can I? Some women in my place, and with my recollections to look back on, would feel differently. Some women would say, It's easier the second time than the first. Why can't I? Why can't I? Oh, you devil tempting me! Is there no angel near to raise some timely obstacle between this and tomorrow which might help me give it up? I shall sink under it. I shall sink if I write or think of it any more. I'll shut up these leaves and go out again. I'll get some common person to come with me, and we will talk of common things. I'll take out the woman of the house and her children. We will go and see something. There is a show of some kind in the town. I'll treat them to it. I'm not such an ill-natured woman when I try, and the landlady has really been kind to me. Surely I might occupy my mind a little in seeing her and her children enjoying themselves. A minute since, I shut up these leaves as I said I would, and now I have opened them again. I don't know why. I think my brain is turned. I feel as if something was lost out of my mind. I feel as if I ought to find it here. I have found it. Midwinter. Is it possible that I can have been thinking of the reasons for and against for an hour past, writing Midwinter's name over and over again, speculating seriously on marrying him, and all the time not once remembering that even with every other impediment removed, he alone, when the time came, would be an insurmountable obstacle in the way? Has the effort to face the consideration of Armadale's death absorbed me to that degree? I suppose it has. I can't account for such extraordinary forgetfulness on my part in any other way. Shall I stop and think it out as I have thought out all the rest? Shall I ask myself if the obstacle of midwinter would, after all, when the time came, be the unmanageable obstacle that it looks at present. No, what need is there to think of it? I have made up my mind to get the better of the temptation. I have made up my mind to give my landlady and her children a treat. I have made up my mind to close my diary, and closed it shall be. Six o'clock. The landlady's gossip is unendurable. The landlady's children distract me. I have left them to run back here before post-time 
and write a line to Mrs. Oldershaw. The dread that I shall sink under the temptation has grown stronger and stronger on me. I have determined to put it beyond my power to have my own way and follow my own will. Mother Oldershaw shall be the salvation of me for the first time since I have known her. If I can't pay my note of hand, she threatens me with an arrest. Well, she shall arrest me. In the state my mind is in now, the best thing that can happen to me is to be taken away from Thorpe Ambrose, whether I like it or not. I will write and say that I am to be found here. I will write and tell her, in so many words, that the best service she can render me is to lock me up. 7 o'clock the letter has gone to the post. I had begun to feel a little easier when the children came in to thank me for taking them to the show. One of them is a girl, and the girl upset me. She is a forward child, and her hair is nearly the color of mine. She said, I shall be like you when I have grown bigger, shan't I? Her idiot of a mother said, Please excuse her, miss, and took her out of the room laughing. Like me, I don't pretend to be fond of the child, but think of her being like me. Saturday morning. I have done well for once in acting on impulse and writing as I did to Mrs. Oldershaw. The only new circumstance that has happened is another circumstance in my favor. Major Milroy has answered Armadale's letter, entreating permission to call at the cottage and justify himself. His daughter read it in silence when Armadale handed it to her at their meeting this morning in the park. But they talked about it afterward loud enough for me to hear them. The major persists in the course he has taken. He says his opinion of Armadale's conduct has been formed, not on common report, but on Armadale's own letters, and he sees no reason to alter the conclusion at which he arrived when the correspondence between them was closed. This little matter had, I confessed, slipped out of my memory. It might have ended awkward for me if Major Milroy had been less obstinately wedded to his own opinion. Armadale might have justified himself, the marriage engagement might have been acknowledged, and all my power of influencing the matter might have been at an end. As it is, they must continue to keep the engagement strictly secret, and Miss Milroy, who has never ventured herself near the great house since the thunderstorm forced her into it for shelter, will be less likely than ever to venture there now. I can part them when I please, with an anonymous line to the Major. I can part them when I please. After having discussed the letter, the talk between them turned on what they were to do next. Major Milroy's severity, as it soon appeared, produced the usual results. Armadale returned to the subject of the elopement, and this time she listened to him. There is everything to drive her to it. Her outfit of clothes is nearly ready, and the summer holidays, at the school which has been chosen for her, end at the end of next week. When I left them, they had decided to meet again and settled something on Monday. The last words I heard him address to her, before I went away, shook me a little. He said, 
"'There is one difficulty, Neely, that needn't trouble us, at any rate. "'I have got plenty of money.' "'And then he kissed her. "'The way to his life began to look an easier way to me "'when he talked of his money and kissed her. "'Some hours have passed, and the more I think of it, "'the more I fear the blanks interval between this time "'and the time when Mrs. Oldershaw calls in the law "'and protects me against myself. "'It might have been better if I had stopped at home this morning. "'But how could I, after the insult she offered me yesterday, "'I tingled all over to go and look at her. "'Today, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. "'They can't arrest me for the money before Wednesday, "'and my miserable five pounds are dwindling to four and he told her he had plenty of money, and she blushed and trembled when he kissed her. It might have been better for him, better for her, and better for me, if my debt had fallen due yesterday, and if the bailiffs had their hands on me at this moment. Suppose I had the means of leaving Thorpe Ambrose by the next train, and going somewhere abroad, and absorbing myself in some new interest among new people. Could I do it, rather than look again at that easy way to his life, which would smooth the way to everything else? Perhaps I might. But where is the money to come from? Surely some way of getting it struck me a day or two since. Yes, that mean idea of asking Armadale to help me. Well, I will be mean for once. I'll give him the chance of making a generous use of that well-filled purse which it is such a comfort to him to reflect on in his present circumstances. It would soften my heart toward any man if he lent me money in my present extremity, and if Armadale lends me money, it might soften my heart toward him. When shall I go? At once? I won't give myself time to feel the degradation of it and to change my mind. Three o'clock. I mark the hour. He has sealed his own doom. He has insulted me. Yes, I have suffered it once from Miss Milroy, and I have now suffered it a second time from Armadale himself. An insult, a marked, merciless, deliberate insult, in the open day. I had got through the town, and had advanced a few hundred yards along the road that leads to the great house, when I saw Armadale at a little distance coming toward me. He was walking fast, evidently with some errand of his own to take him to the town. The instant he caught sight of me, he stopped, colored up, took off his hat, hesitated, and turned aside down a lane behind him, which I happened to know would take him exactly in the contrary direction to the direction in which he was walking when he first saw me. His conduct said, in so many words, "'Miss Milroy may hear of it. I daren't run the risk of being seen speaking to you. Men have used me heartlessly. Men have done and said hard things to me. But no man living ever yet treated me as if I was plague-struck, and as if the very air about me was infected by my presence. I say no more. When he walked away from me down that lane, he walked to his death. I have written to Midwinter to expect me in London next week, 
and to be ready for our marriage soon afterward. Four o'clock. Half an hour since, I put on my bonnet to go out and post the letter to midwinter myself. And here I am, still in my room, with my mind torn by doubts and my letter on the table. Armadale counts for nothing in the perplexities that are now torturing me. It is midwinter that makes me hesitate. Can I take the first of those three steps that lead to the end without the common caution of looking at consequences? Can I marry midwinter without knowing beforehand how to meet the obstacle of my husband when the time comes which transforms me from the living Armadale's wife to the dead Armadale's widow? Why can't I think of it? when I know I must think of it. Why can't I look at it steadily as I have looked at all the rest? I feel his kisses on my lips. I feel his tears on my bosom. I feel his arms around me again. He is far away in London, and yet he is here and won't let me think of it. Why can't I wait a little? Why can't I let time help me? Time, it's Saturday. What need is there to think of it unless I like? There is no post to London today. I must wait. If I posted the letter, it wouldn't go. Besides, tomorrow I may hear from Mrs. Oldershaw. I ought to wait to hear from Mrs. Oldershaw. I can't consider myself a free woman till I know what Mrs. Oldershaw means to do. There is a necessity for waiting till tomorrow. I shall take my bonnet off and lock the letter up in my desk. Sunday morning. There is no resisting it. One after another the circumstances crowd on me. They come thicker and thicker, and they all force me one way. I have got Mother Oldershaw's answer. The wretch fawns on me and cringes to me. I can see, as plainly as if she had acknowledged it, that she suspects me of seeing my own way to success at Thorpe Ambrose without her assistance. Having found threatening me useless, she tries coaxing me now. I am her darling Lydia again. She is quite shocked that I could imagine that she ever really intended to arrest her bosom friend, and she has only to entreat me as a favor to herself to renew the bill. I say once more, no mortal creature could resist it. Time after time I have tried to escape the temptation, and time after time the circumstances drive me back again. I can struggle no longer. The post that takes the letters to-night shall take my letter to midwinter among the rest. To-night. If I give myself till to-night, something else may happen. If I give myself till to-night... I may hesitate again. I'm weary of the torture of hesitating. I must and will have relief in the present, cost what it may in the future. My letter to Midwinter will drive me mad if I see it staring and staring at me at my desk any longer. I can post it in ten minutes' time, and I will. It is done. The first of the three steps that leads me to the end is a step taken. My mind is quieter. The letter is in the post. By tomorrow, Midwinter will receive it. 
before the end of the week armadale must be publicly seen to leave thorpe ambrose and i must be publicly seen to leave with him have i looked at the consequences of my marriage to midwinter no do i know how to meet the obstacle of my husband when the time comes which transforms me from the living armadale's wife to the dead armadale's widow no when the time comes i must meet the obstacle as best i may i am going blindfold then so far as midwinter is concerned into this frightful risk yes blindfold am i out of my senses very likely or am i a little too fond of him to look the thing in the face i dare say who cares i won't i won't i won't think of it haven't i a will of my own and can't i think if i like of something else here is mother jezebel's cringing letter that is something else to think of i'll answer it i am in a fine humor for writing to mother jezebel Conclusion of Miss Gwilt's Letter to Mrs. Oldershaw I told you, when I broke off, that I would wait before I finished this, and asked my diary if I could safely tell you what I have now got it in my mind to do. Well, I have asked, and my diary says, Don't tell her. Under these circumstances I close my letter, with my best excuses for leaving you in the dark. I shall probably be in London before long, and I may tell you by word of mouth what I don't think it safe to write here. Mind, I make no promise. It all depends on how I feel towards you at the time. I don't doubt your discretion, but, under certain circumstances, I am not so sure of your courage. L.G. P.S. My best thanks for your permission to renew the bill. I decline profiting by the proposal. The money will be ready when the money is due. I have a friend now in London who will pay it if I ask him. Do you wonder who the friend is? You will wonder at one or two other things, Mrs. Oldershaw, before many weeks more are over your head and mine. End of Book the Third, Chapter 10